VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, April the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly and David Williams. He's producing the program on this fine day for now. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So as I mentioned, it's a nice day for now. Apparently some pretty windy weather, what do you know? Windy weather coming from most of the island and Labrador today. But they're battening down the hatches on the south coast and particularly on the Great Northern Peninsula for tomorrow where there's going to be the potential for uh, prolonged freezing rain. St. Anthony, for sure, is maybe right in the crosshairs for this. Strong winds, freezing rain, the possibility of power outages is very real. Hopefully not as bad as currently forecasted. All right. I know there's been plenty of people who have participated in the Boston Marathon from this province. Some of my friends have participated in the Boston Marathon, which I find to be an extraordinary accomplishment, period. Imagine running 26 miles. So Kate Baisley, certainly one of the powerhouses on the women's side here as a runner, long-distance runner, she participated yesterday in Boston. It's one of the world's six major marathons, as they call it. So the six are Tokyo, Boston, London, Berlin, Chicago, and the New York City Marathon. But let's stick with Boston. Curiously, it was first run today in history in 1897. And yesterday, Kate Baisley ran it. So, get a load of this. What a powerhouse. She was the 24th fastest woman at Boston yesterday. 24th. She finished 21st in her division, which was the ages of 18 to 39. So, quite the performance. Also, name you be familiar with, Tim Powers. He participated in his first Boston Marathon yesterday. Finished the race. He said he was cramping up a little bit for the last home stretch. He knows why they call it Heartbreak Hill, one of the key features of that course in Boston, but if you have someone belong to you or someone you know who you think deserves a shout-out for their participation in the Boston Marathon yesterday, I know there's probably many from the province. Extraordinary accomplishment, but those two in particular got her done. Way to go, Kate. Holy moly. All right, what do we got here? Oh, I hate when they do this to my computer. It was today, just last year in history, where Perseverance made its way to Mars, of course, and it carried in its underbelly a little helicopter, the Ingenuity, Mar- Ingenuity Mars Helicopter. It completed 25 flights on Mars, gathering crucial uh, data, of course, air density, wind speeds, aeronautical figures. It was the first time that a rotary uh, aircraft had performed any of these drills on the surface of another planet. So that was today, just last year. And also today in history, stick with space. Sally Ride was announced as the first American woman astronaut in the space program. She became the third woman to go to space behind cosmonauts, Valentina Tereshkova in 1963, and Svetlana Savitskaya in 1982. I can only pronounce any Russian names, I guess because of watching Russians play in the NHL. So, youngest American astronaut to ever travel to space. She was 32 years at the, uh, at the time, 32 years old at the time. Flew two space missions on the Challenger. She retired from NASA in 1987. At the same time that Sally McBride was announced to be the first American woman in the program, Garen Bluford was the first black, and that's back in 1982. And we have a St. John's woman who's in the space churn at NASA, a young lady named Bethany Downer, inching closer and closer to a ride in space for her as part of the program as well. Also a curious one, The Simpsons. Uber popular has had an extraordinary long run on the small screen. The Simpsons first debuted as a short cartoon on the Tracy Ullman show back in 1987, and they have pounded out, I don't know how many episodes or how many years they've been on, but 
pretty good stuff. All right, back to back to Earth. And reality. So I heard some rumbles and rumors yesterday that the interruption formula was going to be enacted, seeing another spike in the price of fuels. And the question becomes, again, where does it all end? Price of regulated gasoline up 10.5 cents per liter. On the island, the stove oil is up 16.94 cents per liter. It doesn't even mean that we might not see another increase, given Thursdays being the usual day we hear and see these increases. Then there's also lots of rumbles and rumors out there that there's going to be another massive spike by the end of the month. So sometime prior to the 1st of May. Again, I'll throw it out there. I know this is a fool's errand and maybe just wishful thinking, but it would be nice to have a very clear explanation. When the pub says, you know, it's a result of recent market changes, give us more information. Elaborate justify exactly what's going on with the price of fuels. I know we're never going to get there. Doesn't mean I'm going to stop saying it. And I really do think the PUB, you know, does important work as the regulator, no question, even though they've been taken out of the fall regarding Muskrat Falls power. But it would be nice to get a little bit more info versus just the very generic news releases that we get from the PUB. So anyway, people think I'm nuts to even continue to say that. But I think we need to... Continue to ask and wonder. All right, so it's Easter break for teachers, administrators, and students and other staff inside the K-12 system. I know teachers are loath to speak out publicly, so whether you'd like to simply be caller on line number one and or share an email with me, it's openline.vocm.com, because there's a lot of questions out there just about how the school year is going. Whether it be the numbers of teachers that are isolating because of COVID or students isolating because of COVID and what that means for preparation for the next grade level, what your input would be in the review that's ongoing regarding the teacher allocation review and the model, whether you'd like to talk about class size or composition, the numbers of students, uh, student assistants that are in place, the inclusive nature of education, which at this moment in time, not to be disparaging for the sake of, but we really have an approach that feels like just all the students in the same building is all of a sudden inclusive, when there's lots of gaps in that particular approach, which makes all the sense in the world. We don't want to isolate children because of their one issue or another, and we're not going to go down through the entire list. But if you'd like to chime in, it'd be really helpful, I think, because this kind of stuff is important. Our success, our long-term viability as a province is going to rely on a well-educated population. So please, if you're a teacher or a student, or a student, it'd be nice to hear from you. And even if you want to talk about some of the great achievements happening in the province of schools, of course, there's many examples of. And we're happy to give uh, young Newfoundlanders and Labradorians their due when they do great things. I want to say good morning and congratulations to Jack White. He's from St. John's. He was just offered a $100,000 Schulich Leader Scholarship for Engineering at the York University in Toronto. So we're happy to give out these kinds of shout-outs because it's not only recognizing the achievements, it maybe spurs on the next wave of leadership scholarships to be offered to young Newfoundlanders and Labradorians on their way to post-secondary. So if you want to be part of that today, love to talk about some education issues. Also, maybe if you're a high schooler, or in post-secondary at this moment in time, and you're looking towards a, an occupation or a job in the world of health, Memorial University's mini-med school is coming back this year. So if you're interested at all, learning about health and medicine, there's virtual sessions held on Wednesday evenings from April 20th through June 8th. This year's lectures cover issues like geriatric psychiatry, COVID-19, 
mental health stigma. So that might be of interest to many listening or your parents might be listening on your behalf today. So Mons Mini Med School returning this year. Also curious, and I think really pragmatic, is when you see some of the activities in the province of schools to talk about real issues of the day. You know, we saw the students, the uh, grade five students up at J.R. Smallwood Academy, talking about proposing long-term solutions for the fact that there's no long-term care facilities close by where they live. That's important to understand what's happening in the community. Then you see some of the postcard campaigns where teachers are asking for postcards from around the world, different states, different provinces, different countries, not only to put them on the wall to color up these, the classroom, but to then dig in a little bit, understand a couple of issues or uh, whatever's happening in those states and whether it be exporters of uh, gold or silver or what's happening in Spain or what's happening in Bulgaria. And some of those things I think are really helpful. Same thing when I look at some of these scouting organizations. And this is a good story. Someone asked me to give this shout out. Happy to do it. The members of the scout troop, the first CBS scouts troop in Kelligrews, they're learning and thinking about what's happening in Ukraine. And so what they're doing is decorating Easter eggs, which are going to be auctioned off. So they're doing some 20 Sankey intricately decorated Easter eggs. All of the techniques uh, originate in Ukraine and Poland. So this is a really cool exercise as well. Raising some awareness, having some conversation amongst their fellow scouts, and yes, to potentially raise some money. The auction continues right through the 24th of this month. Uh, Ukraine, of course, on the Orthodox Christian calendar. Easter celebrated on the 24th. So nice work done by that group. All right. Spoke with Pauline yesterday. And the concerns that people are sharing regarding what was an effort to take away some of the burden on the healthcare system, offer some clinical services to so many people who don't have a family doctor, for instance. And this is the establishment of the primary care or collaborative care clinics. The minister says all of the doctors working at these clinics are new to the system. Mr. Lane here is different. He says that he knows of a Mount Pearl doctor who's shutting down their clinic to move into one of these collaborative care clinics. The concern will be whether they do or they're allowed to take their entire patient roster with them. So the intention is quite clear. If one of these clinics where you might need to see an RN or a nurse practitioner or a general practitioner, whatever the case may be, you'll see the person that you need to see. But those 3,000-ish patients on this doctor's uh, roster might not necessarily be able to follow along. Now, the clinic might be able to see up to 9,000 when they complete their entirety, looking through the waiting list and bringing patients into the fold. But if it's not all new doctors, then we really are just shuffling around the professionals. And that, of course, will not result in the expansion to the maximum that we would hope would come to bear with the creation of these collaborative clear clinics. So I don't know. Then there's a concern, it's ongoing, about getting at your uh, patient records, your medical records. You know, hopefully the doctors that are retiring or moving along will give the ample opportunity for their patients to collect their medical records free of charge versus getting involved with this third party and all of a sudden a family of four paying whopping big sum to get their medical records to transfer, if they're lucky enough, to their next clinic and the doctor. Okay, you want to talk about that? That's a lot, but anyway. I see Larry Short, who's a financial advisor. He's been a contributor on this station and in other media outlets. He's talking about the Rothschild Report. Okay, so we know it costs us five million American it's in hand. The government has said that they're not going to release it based on commercial sensitivities. And even portions of the report that are not commercially sensitive will also not be released to the public. Mr. Short is, in essence, defending the government's approach on this one. You know, basically saying that 
you don't want to give away too much to have a potentially negative impact on the bidding process. I think everyone would agree that nobody is asking for that. We don't need the government to tell us exactly what one asset or another has been valued at, the NLC or Marble Mountain or our offshore assets. But even if we understood that there was a recommendation, say, to sell off the NLC in full or in part, I don't know how that has a negative impact on the bidding. It would then allow, at least for some fundamental debate on the floor of the House of Assembly. Because if this is all done and we only find out after the fact what happened and how it compares to any potential uh, value assessed by Rothschild and Co., so nobody wants this to be a bad thing. We don't want to cut off our nose to spite our face. But at this moment in time, we're sort of flying in the dark. And I think that's how people will react to the government's decision. But Mr. Short, he says it's much akin to a homeowner paying for an appraisal on their house before they list it. Okay, we don't need to know the value. But I think we need to know more than what we currently know because at this moment in time, we know nothing. Anyway, let's keep going. Oh, in the recent past, I can't tell you how many people have connected with us, whether a few phone calls, but tons of emails and private messages, regarding the concerns that many people would have with the sale of properties owned by the Archdiocese of St. John's, notably the churches. And yes, it's a fair criticism to say that, you know, the people that contributed to and built these churches are now going to be the ones on the outside looking in, and whether or not this should be a bill paid by the Vatican. Okay. There has been an agreement struck between the Archdiocese and Mr. Budden, the lawyer representing the victims of Mount Cashel, to not sell the cemeteries, even though I'm not so sure that that would have ever been an attractive option for either the archdiocese and or a potential developer. So they've struck a side deal, agreed to not sell the cemeteries. Two or three churches in particular have congregants who have reached out to me, parishioners, and they're quite concerned. And it's not, you know, they do draw cold comfort from the fact that their cemetery will not be sold, but they're also wondering about some of these older churches where you have, might have a load of unmarked graves and whether or not there's going to be some sounding done to ensure that any of those parts of the property are excluded from potential sale as well. You can understand that when it's one of your family members, right? Someone in the, in the family line is buried in maybe one of the smaller plots that may not be marked and or really small plots that may have two or three headstones but maybe a dozen bodies. It would be a shame if they get dozed over and uh, become part of the foundation of a big home or something. So I can get that. And that's why all of these details have to be addressed before we move any further. How are we doing on the telephone there, Dave? All right. For the purpose of information and information alone, the province hadn't updated its COVID hub since last Wednesday because, of course, Friday was Good Friday and a holiday. So I don't know how much time people spend on wondering what the numbers will look like. Many people out there are still curious. We have been told by the Chief Medical Officer of Health and Dr. Hagee that it looks like the modeling says we're at or near peak. What the modeling is based on, we're really not entirely sure, given all the change in the testing protocols. So when they say there's 723 new cases that have been identified since Wednesday, that number is in no way accurate. So I don't know how people absorb or hear that number and how they treat that number. I suppose we look at hospitalizations and deaths. That's the only thing that we can really understand that have been, you know, accurately portrayed. So the province is reporting five more deaths due to COVID-19. The total since the beginning of the pandemic, 142. But 32 so far the month of April. Our condolences to the families. 
There are uh, 34 people in hospital. That's only up by two since last Wednesday, six of which are in critical care. We wish them a speedy recovery. I do admit, I suppose because of what I do for a living and having to check these numbers, even though I'm a little bit tired of them too, like most of you are, but it's still there. As tired as I am of the pandemic doesn't mean it's gone away. But I was anticipating much more severe numbers. And thankfully, they didn't come to pass. So offer those for tidbits of information if you'd like to talk about it. We certainly can tackle it today. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. Let's get a taste of a tune going. This is something that I do routinely every night. In 1961, Bobby Lewis released the single Tossin' and Turnin' on Belltone Records. When we come back, let's do it. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Sean, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, Sean Buckingham. How are you, sir? Not too bad. Thanks, you? Uh, pretty good. Thank you. Uh, happy Easter to you and your family. Um, I was reading um, that any decisions that are discussed in Captain remain secret. Um, and that was put in by one of our uh, premiers a while back. Uh, would that rule uh, prevent them from uh, giving us what's in the uh, Rothschilds report? Well, I mean, it's a curious question. I saw Russell Wangerski tweet this out or last week, week before, whatever it was. He said he was told by a former member of some cabinet, or he didn't say which politician or which party, that simply walked into a cabinet meeting one morning, threw a piece of paper or a group of papers on the table and said, there you go, now it's a cabinet document, we don't have to release it. So sometimes it's easy enough for governments to say, well, this is a cabinet document. Also, there's been a ruling in court very recently talking about the province simply saying that something is a matter of client solicitor privilege and so consequently cannot be released without the privacy commissioner being able to evaluate whether or not it actually is a matter of client solicitor privilege. So access to information, I would assume our our best interests are protected by Michael Harvey. If he's able to determine whether or not something should be released, whether it be because of client solicitor privilege and or commercial sensitivities versus politicians make those decisions, I think we'd be better served with that approach. So you agree with Larry Short? No, I don't, uh, okay. to be honest with you. Mr. Short says that, you know, any release would uh, negatively impact the bidding. My comment is pretty clear, is that let's say, for instance, that the Rothschilds were the same thing as Moya Green and her team, and that report was released that said, we should divest ourselves of our go- oil and gas assets. We should sell off the NLC. We should sell off Polar. We should sell off Marble Mountain. We should sell off or privatize the registries. If they just told us that much, then we'd know what track we're on. We'd allow for some technical briefings for members of the opposition, just a bit more info, because all we know now is that we paid for a report, and we don't know one dollop of what's inside the covers. And, I mean, in terms of transparency, uh, five million U.S., I mean, you know yourself, that's almost eight million dollars Canadian. And they're not giving us the uh, true facts. I mean, uh, I mean, maybe we're taxpayers, and we need to be protected from the truth. But, I mean, in this situation, I think that uh, yeah, Newfoundlanders are, are getting uh, royally, uh, you know, pardon the term, uh, screwed over um, in this particular situation. Well, I don't know if we've been that yet. The, okay. The, you know, I completely understand if the government has... Uh, a legitimate concern with releasing some information that would jeopardize the bidding process. There's no way we need to show our hand. We don't need to yeah. ensure that we get the least amount of money for an asset if we do indeed choose to sell or privatize any of these entities. 
But mm-hmm. there are some things that we absolutely can. Like, for instance, if they were going to release the Green Report and it said we should sell this, well, was that also backed up in the same opinion shared by Rothschild and Co? Because if that's the case, then I think we could all, you know, assume, even though that's a dangerous practice, we could assume that the government is going to proceed with trying to privatize or sell X, Y, or Z. But, you know, what's the difference with what the Green Report said versus what this report said? Take the dollars and the value, the valuations out. Nobody needs to know that, of course. But even if we're being serious, all of the suitors, the potential bidders, inside of their due diligence, they're going to go ahead and figure out on their own accord, whether it be inside uh, knowledge in their company or companies like Rothschild, to have a good idea exactly what something's worth. They're not going to, you know, at this level of business, they're not just throwing spaghetti noodles at the wall. They will have no. done all the work required to ensure that they're going to do the best for their company, their shareholders, or whatever. So what, we're kind of pretending take, that the other side doesn't know what they're doing. We, but you take, I'll tell you what, you take the Chinese, uh, you take the Saudi Arabians, you take um, Norway, um, people with big pockets. I mean, how would, you know, General Electric, I mean, you know, uh, they can't even uh, get the software running for Muscat Falls. Yeah, I'm not sure what that has to do with anything, but yeah. But, well, it's terrible. I mean, and how how more how much more are we going to pour money into General Electric? I mean, and General Electric is a I mean is a world famous company, you know. And uh, you know, my point is, you know, there's lots of people who take Muskrat uh, Falls off our hands. You know what I'm saying? Like who would buy it, all right? And would relieve us of us uh, of the, uh, of you know. Maybe Elon Musk. I mean, there's people who are out there who would buy that and take off all the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, negative wealth uh, with respect. They're going to, to pass our... it on to the ratepayer. No, no, no. If oh, Elon yeah. Musk bought it, yeah. right, he'd structured in such a way that could be agreed on with the government. Okay. He never sent down to Seattle. I mean, he never sent all over the states. How's he getting it anywhere? Well, the thing is, the guy, the guy's a genius. Okay, <laughs> this guy, listen, he's going to be doing asteroid, asteroid mining in space before you know it. Okay. Yeah, but you still you got know? to build a way to get the power out. Any genius in the world would also, you know, acknowledge the fact that to send power anywhere, you need something to send it on. So. That currently, yeah, our, our access now is 500 megawatts on the Maritime Link, which is pretty much yeah. taken up with our commitment to our quote-unquote partners on the other side. So, yeah, I mean, there's power there, even though we don't have as much excess power as people think we do, especially if there's ever a, a moment in time where Hollywood gets decommissioned. But, yeah, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know what kind of genius he may or may not be, but certainly the billions of dollars speak to some sort of successes, obviously, and his $43 billion bid... To take over Twitter is a curious case study, even though the board has impl- implemented the poison pill to dissuade such coercive uh, takeover tactics. But anyway, Sean, I'm going to sneak on another one before the break, but I appreciate the time. I appreciate uh, talking with you, Patty. You take care, okay? You, you too. All the best. Okay. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number four. Liz, you're on the air. Oh, can you hear me, Patty? I can hear you loud and clear. I just wondered how it got out last night that the gas was going up ten and a half cents the, uh, uh, this morning. Uh, they said it was going up by twelve o'clock, and when I got up this morning, it was they had it posted on the computer. 
It used to be that the news outlets, we would get a, an embargo news release, which meant we had to hold it until at least midnight before we disclosed the numbers, the forecast from the PUB. But there's ways around it. You know, there's rumbles that people will either know gas station owners who are given a heads up and or some of the companies involved in distribution who are given a heads up. So the information leaks out there more often than not. And that's that's generally how people get a sneak peek at the uh, the forecast numbers. Yeah, I was just wondering how this person knew when posted it. That's all I want to know. Yeah, they, they got it's either one of those two entities, someone involved in distribution or someone involved with uh, owning a gas station because they get a heads up before we now get a heads up, and they don't have you know, any sort of firm commitment where they're not allowed to talk. They're allowed to do as they see fit. So they'll leak it to a few people. You know, every now and then they leak it to me. My issue yeah. is as a member of the team at VOCM, I've got a commitment to operate with the the parameters that the company has with respecting embargoes and news releases from the PUB. So I could put myself in a hairy spot by leaking numbers because it's not really my role. Uh, but individuals who are just private citizens, when they get it, they can do as they see fit. The PUB has no say over them. Okay, Patty, thank you. That's all I wanted to know. You're welcome, Liz. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, the numbers, by and large, are well understood. Even if, you know, some of the forecasters, the Consumer Group for Fair uh, Gas Prices, and, you know, rest in peace, George. And we get some of those numbers from Dan McTeague. Some weeks they're pretty accurate, some weeks not so much. But this number was floating around before I went to bed, and it looks like it was right on point. And that's where generally it comes from. And that's how the media got its wrist slapped there a month or so ago because information came from gas station owners. And so it wasn't a betrayal of the news release from the PUB. They got it from another source. And so that's how that's all changed in the very recent past. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Robin, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How about you? Marvelous, sir, marvelous. So anyways, I'm Robin Philpott. I'm a fourth-generation member of the forest industry in Newfoundland. And the reason I'm calling in today is I'd like to talk about biomass and its use as an energy product. Okay. So the very first question I got for you, and I'm just trying to gauge awareness, um, uh, what do you think of when I say biomass? I don't know, black liquor from the pulp mills, uh, wood pellets, uh, firewood, dust, uh, all oh, yeah. the, the byproducts in the sawmills? Absolutely. So you've got a really good grasp on it. So as long as we're all that understanding. So what I'd like to talk about is the commercial and residential applications of biomass and how important this is to the forest industry. So, of course, for commercial applications, it's really better suited to places that already have boiler systems currently in place because from a cost perspective, it's very efficient to use the existing infrastructure. And fortunately for hospitals, Memorial, College of North Atlantic, a lot of these places, these commercial buildings that the government owns, they do have boiler systems. So it can be a low-cost install, but also it's a low-cost energy source in comparison to uh, electricity or uh, oil and gas. So that's the first aspect. So when I hear about Memorial University being electrified, I kind of raises some eyebrows for me wondering about tuition and the fact that just shortly there and after they were uh, being questioned about their costs. So I'll leave that where it's to. 
But the other aspect I look at is also from a residential perspective. And so for the majority of residents in Newfoundland, we have a raising demographic, and there are a lot of them are on fixed income. So I sit on a town council for my small community, and this is something I grapple with pretty well on a daily basis, is wondering how do we continue to provide the same services without passing all of the extra costs onto the residents? So when I see that utility companies have a guaranteed rate of return and the crown corporations and they're subsidized by the government to install electrical appliances for heating homes at a higher unknown cost, because that's the key there. We don't know how much higher that cost is going to go. And that uncertainty for someone who's on fixed income, if it was me, it would be a big concern. So there's companies out there that are trying to get wood appliances installed so they can use biomass that is a low cost and is a relatively fixed cost in terms of what it's actually going to cost year over year. But it's really hard to compete in the marketplace when your competition is Crown Corps as well as the government. So that's a really good use for biomass, but it's, it's, it's tough to get into that market when you really start focusing on who you're competing with. Uh, and we also need to look at biomass from uh, a greenhouse gas perspective. So I find there's a really big education piece that's missing here. So we always talk about how biomass is carbon neutral, but I don't think a lot of people really understand how it's carbon neutral. And so, you know what? You can add me to that pile because when we talk emissions, it absolutely has to include an, a complete life cycle because, you know, even when we talk about offshore oil, we'll talk about greenhouse gas emissions just at the point of extraction, which adds up to about 15 to 18% of the entire life cycle. So when we compare biomass to hydro, uh, you know, I think anything compared to Holyrood is, everything's greener than Holyrood other than coal pretty much. So when we talk about a full life cycle, let's compare it to hydro. So how does it add up on its road to carbon neutrality? Because that's an often misused phrase as well. All right. So the, so the real big thing that's missing here is the understanding of the life cycle of a tree. So uh, a growing force, a youthful force that's in its growth cycle is actually carbon sequestering. It's absorbing carbon. So when you've got a very strong and productive sawmill and forest industry, and that's really what this biomass outlet's all about, is securing that industry. You can take a look at northern pulp over in Nova Scotia and Pictou County. The second they shut down, well, over a dozen sawmills shuttered because their economic model is based on the fact that we har they harvest logs, they process in the lumber, but you have to have an outlet for the byproducts. But if you're harvesting logs, saw logs, saw logs come from mature forests, somewhere in the 50 to 60 year age class range, depending on the forest and the stand and species that you're in. So those trees have already pretty well reached the peak of the amount of carbon sequestering they're going to do. The very next stage in their life cycle is to blow down, to rot, to decay, and actually release methane back into the atmosphere. So when you've got a strong saw milling industry, when you're getting good support and you've got good security, you're able to invest, develop, increase production, and therefore you're able to harvest the mature forest, which is already carbon sequestered, you're able to invest in civiculture, which is planting new trees, uh, doing thinnings, uh, thin out around a tree so it allows it to grow faster, gets more sunlight, more nutrients, and therefore it also absorbs more carbon. And so that's the really big 
piece that everybody's missing. By using biomass and supporting the forest industry and the sawmill industry, we're harvesting more mature trees, we're planting more young trees, and if we can keep our forest in a growth cycle, we're carbon sequestering and absorbing carbon from the atmosphere, and that's ultimately how it impacts greenhouse gases. Sure, okay, but you know, there's a couple of things inside of all that. So a saw log comes from a mature tree versus like some pulp wood, and there is that's a right. lot of myths out there associated with the carbon sequestration in an old growth forest, which is not necessarily part of this conversation. Okay, so it's understood the life cycle of carbon capture as a tree would permit. But there's also cutting it down, what happens in the mill, and what the byproduct looks like, and how green that that byproduct will be, because that's where the government is resting their laurels, is that they consider the hydro-powered uh, boiler that's going to be installed at Mon would be greener than what they're currently doing. It would be greener, possibly, than any of the biomass produced at a sawmill. So let's move all the way to the byproduct. How green or what's the carbon neutrality and or emissions with the byproduct from black liquor to wood pellets to wood chips or dust or whatever the case may be versus the boiler that that the government chose for mono? So I can't speak to that because I don't actually know the difference between those two. So I'm not going to talk about something I don't know know anything about. Fair enough. That's that's, that's not something I want to get into. But like I said, for, for our perspective... It's securing securing an outlet for the biomass to constantly be developing to harvest the mature trees and planting young ones. The carbon sequestering is in the growth of the forest, and that's where we got to focus on. Because without a forest industry, civiculture as an action will stop, and we'll be finding a lot more forest areas like Terra Nova, for example, where you got lots of blowdown and decay, and that's not beneficial for greenhouse gases at all. No, and it's a fire load. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. So that's all that is. So that's, that's really the perspective that I wanted to get across because that's a conversation that we don't have a lot of is the impacts of harvesting mature forests and therefore reinvesting in the civiculture. And I feel like there's a big education piece there that needs to be explained and needs to be explained over time for everybody to understand because I'm still running into a lot of people that view the harvesting of a forest as being an environmental disaster when really it's, it's a life cycle, unlike mining, which it causes deforestation, which there is nothing going back there. But for us, everything we clear cut, uh, there's a civiculture process, is regrown and it grows back up. And you can go in around the Bombay Pond area, you know, where corn pulp and paper is on their third or fourth time cutting over the same stands. And it's still as beautiful today as it was 100 years ago when they started. So it truly is something that is a long term sustainable industry and it helps improve greenhouse gases through the carbon sequestering of the forest. Yeah, I, I think people will understand the reforestation. And even you mentioned mining. The, the road to reclamation of some of those mine sites is long, if not never. Uh, appreciate the time. Good talking to you, Robin. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The only thing that I think we can absolutely agree on is that the velvety feeling of wood heat is truly unmatched in home. <laughs> Nothing like a log of birch warming you up. Absolutely. Thanks All the best, Patty. You too, man. All the best to you. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break on time. What do you know? When we come back, Clayton wants to talk about what he sees happening in Ukraine. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Clayton. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. I'm doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Pretty good, bye. Good. I was just listening to some of your comments before it gets into the Ukraine war. Sure. Uh, you were saying, you know, you said, you said some people think you're correct. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah, yeah, well okay. Well they must think probably they think I'm cracked too. That could very well be. I mean it's a yeah, funny well, old okay. world. Okay. Well, okay. You, right. you better believe, it, but it's educational though. Okay, what's on your mind, Clayton? Now, Ukrainian. Okay. 
That's uh, P-U-T-I-N. That Russian guy. Yes, Putin. Okay? Right. Okay. Now, they put down his ship, right? Yeah. His warship. The flagship in the Black tor- Sea, yeah. They put, yeah, they put two torpedoes in the hull of her. She sank. Right. Well, okay. Now, he wants to get revenge on that, which he's getting, with all them poor little innocent children, Patty, and everything else. But in the meantime, there's something wrong with him. Uh, I think that's a fair assessment that there's something wrong with him. So yeah, the the ship yeah, that you're referring to is the wrong with him. He got something wrong with him. Do you think you're correct? I don't know what's the matter with him. Well, I'm I'm personally not involved in any crimes against humanity or any of the atrocities no, of war. No, no, I'm not either. Okay, but I didn't tell, think so. I'll tell you one thing though. What's that? If I was near him, and isn't that a threat? I'd grab him by the privates and I'd squeeze him. Yeah. And I'd make him whistle Dixie. Yeah, I don't think you're going to have a chance to get very close to him. Uh, you know. No, no, I know. I'm 80 years old. I'm not going to get there. <laughs> I know that. But, Paddy, in the meantime, you know, that war, I think myself, is going to lead into a third world war. Well, I, I guess... My, that's my time. Okay, well, uh, let's hope not, and that's what I think uh, many I countries... Don't want it, I don't want it either, Patty. Mm-hmm. But he's a big soup. He wants to be taken like they don't with that fella down the rack. Hang him, hang him. What a neck. Till he's dead, dead, dead. Okay? Fair I'm enough. I'm not crazy. Hey. I'm not crazy. It's terrible to hang him. Is that what you say? Uh, no, I didn't really say anything to it. Um, it's hard to know where this ends, though. People talk about the quote-unquote off-ramps and all of those types of things. Yes, but Patty, my God almighty, we're all human beings, but look at them little children. Yes, Brian. it's hard to watch. A damn right it's hard to watch, and I hope to God somebody something knew something about it, boy, or something. My God, Patty. I hope they know something about it, that's all, because... This is not good on people, you know? Which is why I've kind of cut back on my uh, watching or reading too much about it because I do find it pretty oh, overwhelming. I had a book over the university the other day. We get clear of the war. I, had a, I went over and got a book about this pollution, okay, in there? Uh, okay, which pollution? Now, in the book it stated if everything was taken out of the air, airplanes... Everything, every gasoline vehicle, it'd take 40 years to clean this place up, and it mightn't be cleaned up then. But they're coming out with the electric car. That's they're probably good for gas. That's probably good for gas. It's good for emissions, even though there's lots of concerns yeah. environmentally regarding the minerals required for electric vehicles, which is a uh, fair uh, conversation. I'll give you the last word, Clayton, before I take another call. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I don't want to be on too long. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll say goodbye here. I appreciate your time this morning. I wish you well. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, bye-bye. You know, it's interesting regarding the uh, greenhouse gas emissions, what we've seen. In 2020, there was actually a reduction in greenhouse gases. Even though Canada, we talk a big game, but our numbers are up, right? But just even think back to when the pandemic began, and the r- world really did grind to a bit of a halt. And the canals in Venice were in clear. And the, you know, even shots from space and some of the, the smog that we see over some of the world's major cities. 
it wouldn't take 40 years to clean up and you're not going to be able to haul everything out of the sky and every uh, vehicle whether it be in the agricultural world or passenger vehicles or buses or trucks they're all not going to be clean at a flip of a switch and there's so much infrastructure required and yes environmental co- conversation regarding extraction of minerals that leads to the production of the electric vehicles as we know them today is an absolutely fair conversation I think th- that whole world changes when we talk more and more about hybrids which I think will be the go-to for many and I think the path towards solid-state batteries versus the lithium polymer batteries that we see now is going to be a bit of a, a game changer as they call it as well let's go to line number four good morning Edward you're on the air uh, yes uh, good morning Patty uh, two mornings in a row I've called you now as a, as a record for me uh, I just uh, wanted to make a couple of comments. Uh, I, I actually never knew anything about this uh, credit card fiat, government credit card fiasco until you mentioned it on the air yesterday morning. And then I went looking for some information on it, and uh, it's mind-boggling to me. Uh, I mean, the uh, only thing I can say about this it's it's a government cover-up. I mean, Dave, that's been a very well-hidden kind of a secret. Uh, I, I certainly haven't seen anything about it on uh, on any of the newscasts. And uh, I'm just wondering why this is being handled like it is. I mean, obviously people did fraudulent things with those credit cards, and it was never reported to the police. I mean, my memory is uh, not what it used to be, but how far do we have to go back when we had another House of Assembly scandal with, uh, uh, I think it was mostly conservative, but that doesn't matter. I I don't care what political stripe. I mean, we went through all this to the tune of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, uh, scammed and stolen by a bunch of individuals. Uh, they were convicted, and so have we forgot all about this? No, I mean, I, I'm just I'm just blown away. Edward, why do you call it a cover-up, for instance? Because this was disclosed based on the work of the Auditor General, which is exactly what we need Denise Hanrahan and her team to do, is to identify these things through their annual audits. Well, I called the cover-up because I think the people involved in this should no longer be working for the government. I mean, these people are probably, some of them are in, I don't know who any of them are, and I I really don't care. But, I mean, if they're stealing, basically, from the provincial uh, coffers, I don't think they should be on the public payroll anymore. You know, if we can't trust you with the credit card, we probably can't trust you at all. Exactly. So, you know... The, the fact, here's a couple of questions that people will rightfully ask, is why do we have these credit cards in the hands of so many uh, staffers working for the public service? It's a good question. Now, there's certainly going to be examples where they'll need a credit card, whether it be to refill a vehicle or some other minor purchases in the normal daily operations. But there is certainly no need for any government credit card to have the ability to get a cash advance. The only person that lost their job, just one second, the only person that lost their job did indeed get cash advances in excess of 131 They lost their job. The other disciplinary measures were garnishing some wages, a few suspensions. The police were not contacted on any of these issues. But Ms. Hanrahan refers to some of these things as straight-up fraud, you know, misrepresenting credentials and otherwise. And I I think 
part of the reason why this has been, if it's not a cover-up, it's certainly been on a low profile. Uh, Patty, I can relate to uh, the corporate credit card uh, issue. I worked for a company for 38 years, and the last 10 years I worked there, I had a corporate credit card that I would u- I could use to purchase things that were required. But every month, Patty, I had to submit a written report of itemizing everything that was on that uh, charge to that credit card for the month. And and if I couldn't explain it, I mean, someone had to approve it. So my contention is uh, the people who uh, held the credit cards and took uh, this money or purchased goods or whatever the case might be, they were at fault. But I think that in the end, somebody fell down for approval these expenses. I mean, nobody working for any kind of a, a reputable organization can just go buy, spend, take whatever they want without somebody in that organization, whether it be government or private, somebody has to check that off and say, yes, that's legitimate, that's okay. But it appears to me like that it was just a free-for-all there, and everybody, uh, well, not everybody, but the people involved in this scandal, they took full advantage of it. And and the government, instead of rep- uh, uh, disciplining these people and... and uh, charging them with fraud it's covered up my opinion well we don't have any names of any of the people that uh, abused or misused these credit cards and it was rampant right across most every department so says the auditor general you know I've I don't know what the cover-up includes but I mean I've spoken to it almost every day since the story broke and I just don't think it's good enough we cannot have a campaign be driven by accountability transparency and all of those things and then as soon as you're elected those things go by the wayside it happens repeatedly the yeah. real authority belongs in the office of the privacy commissioner Michael Harvey he should yeah. be the one making these decisions not the politicians because we always get a politically motivated decision as opposed to a pragmatic realistic justifiable or defensible decision which is absent in politics and it's, it drives me nuts I like information I like to have it in front of me if it's yeah. hard to have a legitimate conversation or uh, to applaud or to criticize if we don't have enough info to formulate said opinion. I'll give you the last word, Edward, before I go to the news. No, well, i just like to say that uh, your summary there is is exactly uh, the way I feel about it. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, cover-up is a strong word, but uh, boy, fair this, is, this is sure, this is sure been uh, Try to keep it in the in the darkness and not come to light. But uh, I think there's a lot of people here who, uh, if they didn't actually uh, make the purchases or get the cash advances themselves, they they slipped up by not identifying that there's something amiss here. But hey, we're dealing with government, so what do you know? Yep. Appreciate the time, Edward. Thanks for this.
And thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go and take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Jason, you're on the air. Good morning. Morning. Um, I'm calling in today. I just want to, uh, I guess, discuss my perspective on uh, masks and mask mandates as things have been lightening up uh, in that, you know, category, I guess, for the past little while. And to show, you know, I guess just talk about why I probably have a, a unique perspective on it. Um, and to do that, I guess I need to uh, sort of go back, you know, like over 15 years uh, to when I was in another the country, I was volunteering with the helpline. And part of my training, aside from like suicide intervention, was sort of public health because uh, you get calls from youth, et cetera. You had to be able to discuss, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, that kind of idea. And part of my training uh, was by public health nurses. And during that, um, they'd said, you know, mentioned something sort of curious. And they're saying that it's interesting, but uh, HPV, the human papillomavirus, is actually so small it'll pass through the pores in a condom. But we don't tell people that because we don't want them not to buy condoms because, oh, it doesn't really work. Um, well, I'm not sure of the point you're making there. The upside of a condom is clear. Oh, yes. And that's, so that, that's kind of the point. Why would you not mention that point? Because I don't think that HPV is a, is a big driver of condom sales. But they didn't have a problem not mentioning, sort of not being truthful about it, because they're trying to control, this, I'm assuming, some small percentage of people who wouldn't buy a condom because it didn't stop HPV. Well, would anybody uh, actually do that when we're talking about, you know, uh, impregnating someone, the spread of STDs, or I, I don't think they call them that anymore. Um, but anyway, sexually transmitted yeah. diseases. So <clears throat> that's the general thoughts behind why people would choose to wear a condom as opposed to a focus in on uh, human papillona, wouldn't it be? I mean, I, well, know, I, I can't speak for anybody, why, everybody, but obviously. Oh, yeah, no, but I was just, it was curious because uh, a couple years before that, I'd, uh, <clears throat> my brother's girlfriend at the time was doing a master's degree in <clears throat> nutrition. And part of her, she was focusing on food security. And <clears throat> so part of that was about finding, you know, greater nutrient density in foods. And so she was doing tons of research on organic versus non-organic. And she just kept finding, you know, that organic was clearly you know, more nutrient dense. And she asked one of her instructors who happened to be one of those people who sat on the Canada food guide board to approve modifications, et cetera. Like why isn't how Canada coming out and saying, look, food is clearly more nutrient dense. And she was told that they didn't do that because people with lower income uh, basically might go buy, spend a lot of their money on one good organic meal and then live on Mr. Noodles the rest of the week. Well, I guess that's why they go with the food guide as opposed to picking winners and losers because I think government should be uh, careful in how they talk about these things. Yes, there's no denying what the advocacy groups or umbrella organizations will say about the healthy, the nutritious value of one product or another, organic or otherwise. So when they put out the food guide, I guess that's their attempt to display what might be a healthy approach to a diet as opposed to get fully behind organics or otherwise because you know i do think governments have to be careful about 
those types of things. We can have it as part of uh, education curriculum, for instance, which is vastly different than, for instance, if uh, Health Canada or the federal government says you should do this versus don't do that. So I, I think that's how they kind of approach those types of things. In the educational world, it's a much different feel and flair than when it becomes a politically driven issue. And that's just my initial off the top of my head take on your comments. Yeah, no, I see that. I just, But I just see a pattern of the government having no allegiance to truth when they want to control, you know, the population's behavior. Right. And that's that's just standard. There was, a, you know, there was no crisis going on at the time. You know, there's a sort of standard behavior. We don't have to be honest. We need to control these people's behavior for their own good. But wouldn't, you know, the, wouldn't, the, better. wouldn't the example of controlling people's behavior is if they were all in on organics versus people make their own purchasing decisions with their own money based on what they like, you know, whether it be based on their healthy choices and or their uh, whatever flavors they like or whatever products they support or local or otherwise. So, I mean, how is government in any way, shape, or form controlling my behavior by not talking about organics or not talking about human papillomavirus and a condom? They're, well, that, no, I shouldn't say they're actually controlling necessarily. They're just not being truthful about something. They're, they're not saying, hey, we've done research, organics are better, you know, that kind of idea. But um, Well, I guess folks that give much thought to it will... Talk about uh, pesticides and herbicides and other chemicals that are absent in the production of organics. And, you know, uh, maybe there's a way for the, the, the world of organic production to talk more about it loudly, which is absolutely something that they should do in an effort for their own gains and their own education awareness programs versus a government entity saying you should buy this. Uh, anyway, I don't want to get a sidetrack here. I'll let you yeah, keep going. Yeah, sorry, I, I didn't get that. Um, so anyway, I was just saying I'd sort of seen a pattern where I didn't see the government being focused more, so much on truth, but more on, you know, having a controlled message sort of to the population. Um, but yeah, I, I just, you know, jumped forward to when, you know, January 2020, when, you know, things are getting, you know, sort of scary in Wuhan. Um, I was talking to my youngest brother, who's a, who's a medic in the forces, and discussed that people were already talking about, well, should we be wearing masks? And he was saying, because, you know, from his training, yeah, you know, in terms of epidemics, generally we don't actually wear a mask, and especially among untrained population, it's been shown uh, to increase infection rates because people don't know how to use them or operate in a contaminated environment. What? Wait, no. Um, you know, what... One thing that was absent from a lot of uh, public health messaging was some guidance and conversation about your own... Uh, whether it be your diet or your immune system and vitamins and all of those things that can help your immune system fight off any serious infection. I think that was indeed absent, and I'll agree with that every step of the way. But insofar as wearing a mask, you know, some masks are better than others. We all know that to be true. There's a lot of ineffective masks that, of course, when you wear it under your nose, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. But the pattern is also quite clear. When mask mandates were in place, case numbers stabilized. Now, even though we don't really have a firm grip or grasp on case numbers now because of the changes in testing protocols, but masks, when they were on, cases stabilized. When they came off, cases went up. And that's across the board, not just here in this country, but everywhere. So what's the point you're making here? Wearing a mask made well, it actually, worse? Yeah, it's been sort of like cases. Not in this country. Before we, were, before we were wearing masks, cases were not as bad as after mask mandates came in, right? So the initial... Of, of cases that we locked down for, 
you know, the case rates at that point were nowhere near what they were after mass mandates came in through the summer and fall. Yeah, well, how do you but, uh, how do you factor in what has also been the evolving or mutation of the virus, whether it be how serious Delta seemed to be, how transmissible Omicron has seems to be, how transmissible BA2 seems to be versus the original strain of uh, SARS-CoV-2. Do we not have to factor that in when we talk about the effectiveness of masks or public health policy? Well, the problem is when you take public health numbers, you don't. Have, it isn't a controlled experiment. You can kind of cherry pick what you want, right? So, so that's what I'm saying. Like at the start, I started to go, you know, looking into studies um, about masks, right? And, and the first one I stumbled upon was the Canadian dentist had done one back about 2016. In general, just seeing, basically stating, you know, we we test all our other equipment to a high standard. We've always just assumed that masks protect the dentists and. And, you know, people working with the people from infection. So we should probably look into this. And they looked into it for a couple of years. And, and the response was that at the end of the study, they said masks protect, don't protect dentists against any pathogen, not just viruses, but, you know, bacteria, fungus, things that are 100 times bigger. You know, they're, they're not stopping, you know, you know, sort of that transmission to the person, which is kind of why they I know they, you know, when they came up with masks, they sort of quickly changed the messaging from it protects you to you're protecting someone else. Um and then that, around that same time, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association posted up all 16, you know, randomized controlled studies from the past few, you know, decades on masks. And, you know, and basically all the established science for the previous, you know, three decades said masks had never been shown to affect transmission, including one in uh, back in 1981 that focused on emergency rooms, which people tend to quote, oh, doctors were in emergency rooms to stop infection. That's not really true. They use it as a splash shield because in 81, they, they took an entire year of surgeries, spent six months, uh, everyone wearing a mask, six months, no one wearing a mask, and the number of infections were double when they were wearing masks. You'll have to send so. me that because I'm not so sure I get that one. Uh, but when we talk about something that's airborne, anything that captures any moisture coming out of your nose, or your mouth, reduces the potential for more and more of the molecules to be airborne and to hover for the, you know, we always talk about six feet and 15 minutes. But when the masks were in place, cases stabilized. When they didn't, then there was a different kindle of fish. And someone ridicules me all the time for this. But when some of the public health policies and restrictions go by the wayside, it also comes in a shift with how we think about things. Because a restriction gave that air of, you know, awareness. And not necessarily to be fearful, because I've tried to say that uh, every step of the way here. Don't be afraid. Just be mindful. So when the mandates go away then that's where you see the large gatherings kick in again, where you see some groups and families are very quickly the spread inside of those uh, group, those groups. So it does come with a mindset too. But just, a, and not to be saucy, but why are we revisiting something that's no longer in place? Because nobody has to wear uh, a mask well, anymore. I, well, it's not, not, no, children are still being Children until May the, uh, April, the, or pardon me, May the 13th, yeah? Yeah, and I'm just saying, I'm also, I'm seeing a high number of people sort of, you know, continually sort of, you know, wearing them. And I, and just, I would say in the news, there's as, as things, cases are spiking, there's a lot of people saying, well, we need to bring them back. Um, and I just, you know, I'm just saying this, the established science for three decades said that they don't stop transmission. And it'd be just like the seatbelts. If someone came up with a new study and said, no, what seatbelts uh, don't actually save lives Would that new study that, you know, is in, you know, the opposite of what we've established for 30 years, Change everything we believe about seatbelts. Yeah, but that just, that that hypothetical study doesn't exist, nor does it make any sense. 
You're not going to get ejected from the car, which is the number one cause of death. Not only the collision with the, st the steering wheel or the dashboard, it's also the ejection from the vehicle, which has kept people wearing seatbelts much safer than those not wearing seatbelts. Clearly. Right? Well, no, I'm, yeah, I'm just saying that the, it's not that that's what the seatbelt. I'm just saying that the, we had, you know, decades of science that showed, continually showed one thing. And, and controlled studies, not we're taking, you know, sort of random data that the government's collecting and then assembling to show up a certain percentage. I also don't think that governments or public health officials were saying that the, it's a one issue that will keep anybody or the general population safe. And uh, again, I can only go by what I think of what I say and how I hear people's commentary is that it wasn't one thing. It was everything. So whether it be giving each other a wide berth in the grocery store and washing your hands or covering your coughs and sneeze and wearing a mask and all of those things in conjunction and control the size or capacity restrictions for the numbers of people that, that could be anywhere at one time, it was everything in conjunction that played a role in public health. It wasn't one thing. Is that if you put on a mask, you're safe. If you take one off, you're, you're dead. If you don't get vaccinated, you're dead. If you get vaccinated, you can't carry it. It's never been one of those things because we now know lots of things about the vaccines. They wane over time, clearly. You can indeed get it and shed it, although to a lesser degree, clearly. So it's not one thing. It's been everything. That, that's how I've thought about it. That's how I've heard it over the years, because over the last couple of years, because that seems to be demonstrably accurate and true. I'll give you the last word, Jason, before I take a break. Oh, no, that's good. I just wanted to, you know, sort of, sort of bring that up. I appreciate you making time for the show. No, no problem, Betty. You have a great day. You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Alfred wants to talk about cable companies right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Alfred, you are on the air. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm just wondering uh, uh, with cable companies, the more money they have, the richer they are, billionaire companies treat people as they do. Uh, you know, they don't have any respect for seniors or their customers. And the customers keep them going, uh, especially in Newfoundland. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I was with one, and I went with another one, and they do the same thing. They don't treat seniors or customers as they should be treated. Well, what happened? Pardon? What happened? What happened to you? What happened to me is uh, a number of things. We went in on, on one day with them, and uh, we had trouble with uh, various things, the phone and other things. And then at the end here lately, we had uh, trouble with the TV set. And we told him, and the guy says it's going to take a while to get into Paris. And you know, it. I don't. I don't see it honestly. But in any event, that's what they saw, don't me. And we're waiting on. on yeah, we don't. We can't get any NTV news or anything on it until until it's repaired. Yeah, yeah, and you know. I don't see it when a company got billions of dollars buying various things that they can't do better for their customers. Okay. There there are ways to lodge a formal complaint. It's one thing to call me, quite another to go through the formal channels. If you don't like the treatment that you're getting, there's a commission for complaints for telecom and television services that, I mean, I'm happy to share the information with you if you'd like to give 
put your something in writing, something formalized to talk about well, how see, you... The you thing about it, for seniors, I had surgery in my eyes, had to sell my car. I, uh, I can't drive. The doctors won't let me drive. I could be a hazard on the road. So I gave up my license uh, to protect other people. And we don't have a car. We just sit uh, sit home and watch the telly and and various things of that nature to entertain us. So we de- depend on that. So uh, and we don't go out to movie theaters and stuff like that. We gotta wait for Yeah, we gotta wait until a, a, a box comes in. We're yeah. Okay. And you know, it it it, it seems to me. It all comes down to respect and consideration for your customers. That's all they're after is the money. You add the, the profitability and the way they've kind of cornered the market is a reasonable conversation. It's always funny to me that representatives of whatever company, the big three in the telecom world, you know, the key for them is to get a customer, and then the very next key, 1B, will be to keep the customer. Because you're able to float your telephone number to a different company, there's certainly lots of advantages to changing up your telecom provider because, you know, they, they want to steal a customer from Bell, say Telus does or Rogers does or uh, whatever the case may be. So when you call and say, well, I'm going to cancel your service, I'm just going to move on, you'll very quickly get to the next layer of uh, managerial support, and they'll maybe do something to keep you. Because if you say, just pick one, you're a customer of one, and you call company two, and say, well, I'm thinking about canceling my uh, service with that company, what can you do for me? They will bend over backwards, because stealing customers is the end of the... I did it. Well, uh, it worked for me. And I told them about it, and that I'm going to change... And all they done is deducted $192 from my bank account and then s- send me a bill for another 140 That's all they did. They don't care about you or I. Okay, it works for me. I don't know how it works for anybody else. Well, no, that's true. That's good. I'm glad it works for yeah, you. Yeah, me, me too. And I wish it worked for you, Alfred. Yeah. But it, 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 uh, we're, we're in a standstill. We can't drive. We don't have a vehicle. I no longer can have one, you know, and uh, and we treat it in a way which I think it feels is unfair. And I wish it hadn't happened. Yeah, me too. But what can I do about it? It's not much. Well, if you, okay, I did offer to give you some contact information to lodge a formal complaint. Maybe that'll change the water on the beans. I don't know, but there's not much else I can do beyond that. Is try to point you in the next best direction. Yes, okay. And I, well, no, I get a pen and I'll let you speak to the wife. She'll have That sounds like a good idea. Penny Daly. Write it down. Hello, Penny. Good morning. What's your name, ma'am? My name is Beverly. Nice to have you on the show, Beverly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're having trouble getting our bots in. Like, we got to wait for three days. Yeah. And I don't know if this Complaints Commission is going to be able to do much about a three-day wait based on, you know, the numbers of technicians they have in the field, the numbers of people on the books already. But I will give uh, uh, Alfred this particular number if he'd like to follow up. This is a group that is based uh, in Ottawa, and their sole role is to take official complaints lobbed at the telecom company. So I can give you a toll-free number if you're at all interested. Thank you. Do you have the pen and paper ready? Yes, sir. Okay, it's one eight seven seven. One. 
1877. Oh, no, pardon me. It's 1888. I, I read the wrong line. 1888. Yeah. 221. 221. 1687. Six. What is it? 16. One, six. One, six, yep. All right, wonderful. You know, we can't even get the news. Oh, nothing. <laughs> we got Netflix. That's all we're watching now. What are you watching on Netflix? Yeah. Which which what program are you watching? Uh, t- uh movies. And Just movies? Do you watch I any of the, the TV series? Lots of good TV series on Netflix too. Can you? Because we don't know anything about this. <laughs> we're we're seniors and we don't know anything. <laughs> on the Netflix page, when you log on, you know, based on the movies you've watched, they'll make some recommendations for movies that are similar. So that might be a way to, you know, find out a movie versus someone saying, oh, you should watch this one. Netflix will actually recommend a couple to you based on the ones you've already watched, especially if you've reviewed them and said, I like them. Oh, okay. Yeah, we need somebody here at the house to show us what to do and what not, because we're not computer people. <laughs> you know, I'm on my iPad, but that's about it. And we're just not one of those technical people. <laughs> Well, even on your iPad, uh, Dave is suggesting a, a show called uh, Call the Midwife. I don't know if you will follow through with his recommendation, but uh, there's lots of good stuff out there. Even if you use your iPad and just go to the Google bar and ask for Netflix recommendations, you know, whether you like British dramas or crime or suspense or documentaries, whatever it is that you like, just uh, type it into your Google bar looking for recommendations. All of a sudden, you will be bombarded with stuff, and you never yeah. know. You might find the next great hit. Yes, that's wonderful. And uh, well, he's missing the news. He likes watching. He likes watching the uh, Ukrainians, you know, the people up away. And he's missing that type of news. Yeah, well, there's so much on the old Netflix, and there's all kinds of other streaming uh, services out there. But I do watch a little bit of Netflix every now and then myself. I have to admit. Yes. Anyway, listen, good luck with calling and maybe lodging a formal complaint. And uh, Dave says you should watch a show called Call the Midwife and then have a go at your Google. You might get a fun recommendation. All right, then, wonderful. Okay, Beverly, good luck. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, let's uh, go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Rose, you're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. After 45 minutes waiting, I... <laughs> you want me to put you on hold for another 40? Oh, my God, no, no, no. Okay, God, then no. go ahead. Anyway, just <laughs> me. Okay. I got... Uh, well, here in Placentia, and there's a lot of small communities surrounding Placentia. Just uh, want to put this out here first for a start. And there's a business, uh, which no names are going to be mentioned, uh, would like to open up a club. Now, I got nothing against anybody who wants to open up business. I couldn't care less. It made, it put 50 here. But it's the place... Where they're where they want to put the club, and there's a, a there is a request gone into council uh, uh, to get a permit to have this uh, place, which was the old council building, and and everybody knows uh, where it's to. It's up on the top of Jersey Side Hill. There's a Y there, 
Now I live across the bridge here in the Placentia itself, and you got to. And when you go across that the cheap bridge that we had built, you know, fifty something million dollars, uh, up on the top of that hill, there is a Y, two sharp turns. I'd say the two are pretty much on a sixty degree, very sharp turns, and there's a building there. And, and apartments in it, and a business want to open up, want to buy this building, and to put a club in this building. So we're talking about a nightclub, a bar. A bar, exactly. Okay, so... Yeah, and, and, no, excuse me for a second now. But in yeah. the meantime, right straight across the road, a beautiful children's playground. And by saying that, where do you want to put this bar... Or the club, no parking whatsoever. So the vehicles are going to have to park across the street where the children are playing in the playground. I would imagine most of the the hours most popular for the patrons will be well after the children have vacated the playground. So is that your number one concern? Is that it's too close to the playground? No, it, no. It's my my biggest concern. It's on the sharpest turn. That we got here in the Placentia area. Now it's on it's on Jersey side. Okay. And it's up on top of the hill. And and there's two blind there's two blind turns there. I mean, it's dangerous. And a lot of people in this area. I mean, this you know if you've got any concerns, uh, email uh, at the town council. You know of your concerns. But Patty. A lot of people don't have Facebook. They don't have email. I mean, young seniors, I mean, I'm a young senior, but, I mean, I'm up in my 60s. A lot of people don't have uh, uh, access to a, a computer or Facebook or, or emails or anything like that. I mean, it should be out in a public newspaper, which uh, they don't make anymore. So your concern, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, Rose, you're thinking that because of the sharp turns and parking by the playground, is that you're anticipating that there will be people coming out of that bar half caught getting behind the wheel. Is that? Yes. Okay. And and the end end result is going to become the... Well, certainly, someone who's uh, under the influence might keep her straight on the turn. Uh, so that's obviously a problem. I don't know how we have town councils factor in the kind of twisty, turny roads that lead away from the club because we know that drunk driving is an absolute problem uh, here in this province and across the country. So I get your point. Okay. Is there a better spot that you think would be available for them? Excuse me? Is there a better spot that you'd suggest that they should build their new club? Well, I mean... Uh, Anywhere bought, I suppose. I mean, I, I couldn't care less. It, well, I mean, we got five clubs here anyway. You know, so do you want to add another 10 more? I, uh, you know, I, I got no problem as long as it's in a safe place. But, I mean, I mean, it's an apartment building. I mean, it's been done up for the past couple of years. A beautiful building. You know, apartments up top. And, 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 and obviously, I mean, people are going to be homeless after, if, if this is approved. You know, mm-hmm. but the pe- but but they got to be feedback going to the, the Placentia Town Council, stating yay or nay, is not a proper place for a club. 
point taken, Rose, and I'm sure you've reached out to the council to tell them exactly what you think about this proposal. Good to have you on the show. Hopefully nothing yeah, bad comes and, of it. And, uh, and, anyway, and uh, Patty, before I go, okay. uh, I'd like to uh, send my uh, condolences to uh, uh, Morris Bargill's uh, uh, family. Yeah, fair enough. For their loss. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, he's an avid caller, and, and I've known him for years. But well, anyway... Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, and a lot of people, uh, about to, back to the club, a lot of people in this area don't even know that there's an application gone in. But I hope they are this morning. And this makes the awareness of the surrounding communities saying, look, I'm not going to bring my children over here to the playground. And even after supper, I mean, days are going to be longer. And people are in gambling anyway. And probably having a few drinks, but I mean that's their that's their priority, their their privilege. So anyway, that's my problem this morning, and I just want to put it out there for the people uh, uh, to uh, you know contact the, the town council and 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 state the da- and the dangers, because everybody knows where it's due. It's not on the bottom of a steep hill; it's right on the top, and the two dangerous turns there. I can picture it. I have a bit of familiarity with the uh, Placentia Dunville area. Yes. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning, Rose. And you wanted to get it out there? It's out there. Well, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Take good care. You have a good day. You too, Rose. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's check quick on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. The comments about that the spike in the price of gas today may have something to do with the summer blend, even though, you know, replacing butane with other more expensive additives. I don't even know if that's been delivered yet, to be honest. But if you check across uh, the rest of Atlantic Canada, we're paying on an average 24 cents more per liter in this province versus those provinces. And we're all probably on a very similar summer blend schedule. So, again, my comment will be it would be nice to hear from the entity, the Petroleum Pricing Panel at the PUB, about exactly why. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I want to start with recognizing Friday is Earth Day and um, the top, the I guess the theme this year is we need to act boldly, innovate broadly, and implement implement equitably, and that businesses, government, and citizens, everyone accounted for and everyone accountable, a partnership for the planet. That's not asking a lot. Well, you know, it isn't, but the richer you are, I mean, you know, whenever... I know we're, we're everybody only looks in their own backyard, but you know when we look at Newfoundland and improving oil oil fields like Beta Nord, and of course the the clamor that it's green oil. Um, just imagine you're a poor country. Imagine you know you're Nigeria, and you know we justify because we want to keep driving around in nice pickup trucks and keep our nice houses and be able to fly to Florida. But or is Beta Nord about that more so, or is it about government's ability to pay the bills and hit the payroll? Well, I mean, you know, that's a nail on the head, the payroll, obviously, and paying the bills. You know, and we'll, bu- we'll bump over to our $600,000 credit cards. But, I mean, you know, you, you just have to try and figure out for, for, for the poor countries, and that would be including Russia, including China, including India, these poor countries, because they are way poorer than we are. Um, you know, they're making very difficult decisions as whether their, their residents starve to death, whether they have any health care at all. And their health care, obviously, is very, very uh, – substandard to ours you know and you know if 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 the rich countries really don't want to 
do anything other than pay lip service, which which ultimately is what most of us are really doing, paying lip service. How, you know, what, what hope is there? And and you know, until we all are prepared to look ourselves in the mirror and realize that we have to do with less, less waste, less uh, fast fashion, less travel, less big things. Uh, until we're, and, and significantly less. Like, you know, the only way the world really kind of survives in the long run is if we get to three tons per person. Now, Newfoundlanders are 19 tons per person, and you know, the average on average, we we burn 5,030 liters of fuel in this province. That's 15 tons right there. Um, we eat on average 60 pounds, sorry, 40 pounds of red meat. That's actually over a ton right there. That's per person, and these are really difficult things. I mean, everything that we do, every rig we get in, every decision we make pretty well every day is is moving away from three tons. And it's really, really difficult. And I, I mean, I, I've, I'm trying to do what I can personally, um, but I, and I realize how hard it is. I mean, my wife and I used to do a lot of traveling and, and I went back and I started calculating how much carbon we consumed in our last trip and uh, or created, I should say, which we were consuming it. And it was like 16 tons on one trip. And that's because we got on a cruise ship. And, and I don't know how to balance that. That was the big thing I look forward to every year. And, and I can't get on an airplane. I can't book a trip. And, and that's the level of responsibility I feel. And, and that's difficult. I spoke to someone who loves to travel, and, and they're really struggling with having to make that kind of sacrifice. But isn't, you know, I, I hear air travel all the time, and fair enough. But isn't the overall per-person carbon footprint impact vastly different and lower when uh, travel via air? So I get in the fuselage with 300 people or 185 of us take our own vehicles to go to, to Halifax. Which produces more emissions? The cars. Well, you know what? The quick answer is kind of complicated, like everything. Because when an airplane goes up in the air, it's emitting everything at 30,000 feet. It's already up there. There's no opportunity for a tree to get it. There's no opportunity for it really to get absorbed back into the system. So they actually estimate when you're up in an airplane, it multiplies by 1.9, so 90% more of an impact. And you wouldn't get in your, you won't get in your car and drive to Mexico or to Cuba or to Florida or to Paris. So some of that is. I mean, you know, so, and this is not being being judgmental because, I mean, I don't know how we do deal with these really hard things. I mean, I don't know how we care enough that we realize the consequences. And we're a rich country. And how do we expect the poor countries to act? And, you know, it's really tough. I mean, and, and But everybody needs to realize that at some point you're going to look at a child if you're lucky enough to live to a ripe old age and, or if you're, a ripe, if you're an older person. And you're going to have to answer. I mean, we're all going to have to answer for the choices we're making now. You know, once, when you didn't know the difference, it was it was different, or when you ignored it. But it's very difficult to ignore it now. So, you know, I, I you know, one thing I, I you know, I, it's not all, you know, the, the actions I'm thinking, which I'd love to hear out of a combination of Minister Davis and Minister Parsons, would be that the MMSB is going to start collecting waste oil specifically food-grade waste oil, to send it out to come by chance. And that come by chance, which is going to be a biodiesel and hopefully sustainable aviation fuel facility, will then start injecting that back into our economy so that our mining vehicles and our fishing vessels and, and, and our transportation can start utilizing the products that are going to come out of come by chance. I mean, I'd love to hear an announcement. I mean, they're only going to produce 14,000 barrels. We would probably consume that. 
uh, or come handy to it if if Marine Atlantic was using it and Oceanex was using it and all the different airplanes were using it. So yeah, I don't know who the customers are going to be, and plus it's a pretty minimal impact on uh, the market and what's available out there. Uh, and this is a nitpick for. I suppose it maybe probably shouldn't even do it. Nigeria is actually in the top 25 or 30 uh, wealthiest countries in the world, you know, as opposed to the Somalias and the Burundis and Congo and other countries in Africa. The problem in Nigeria is that uh, very much like the modernized world, the United States and members of the EU and what have you, is that the concentration of wealth in Nigeria is a maddening story. It's even worse than what we experience in uh, North America or in the EU. Anyway, I'll just throw that out there just for an interesting tidbit. Well, and corruption, unfortunately, however you term it, is a big problem. Um, Throughout most thing, of Africa. You know, I, know, I know you had the gentleman there talking about biofuels and, uh, and the life cycle of, of trees. Um, chainsaws, for example. I was, I was actually at a place looking at a DeWalt electric chainsaw, and there was wood harvesters there who said, that's all they use now. It's lighter. It's quiet, one battery. They can do a truckload of wood, and so, crazy. You know, amazing. These these two cycle motor motors, which would include anything that burns like a mixed fuel, like leaf blowers, they emit a massive amount of greenhouse gases of all kinds, nitrous oxides and all kinds of bad things. Nitrous oxide would actually be something that can cause uh, acid rain. But they did a test down in California that that half hour of running a leaf blower was the same as driving thirty to nine hundred miles driving a Ford Raptor with the emissions that came out of the tailpipe. So so there's these are small choices that can make make big big differences. I just want to quickly just just jump over to the six hundred K uh that that uh I mean I, I actually we you and I spoke about that. I don't know if it was you, but one I spoke with one of someone on open line. This is months and months ago when it first came out and then C B C just went and got an access to information to get a little bit more details about it. Uh, you know, for for people who aren't aware of, and I know the gentleman a little while ago was talking about it, but six hundred thousand, over six hundred thousand dollars spent between twenty fifteen and twenty twenty, and and that that's sixty eight people across, like you indicated, a lot of departments, averaging over eight k per person. There were twenty two suspensions and one termination, and then you, again on Thursday you spoke very passionately this, so I, I just want to rehash it because it's important that there was a fraud expert who said there's. That, that there should be zero tolerance for fraud in any form. And and to that point, 2019, there was a fraud management policy implemented within the province that said there would be zero tolerance for fraud in any form, and consequences of fraudulent activity would be up to and including termination and legal action. And and the reality is that that's not what happened. There's no legal – there was no legal actions at all. And I would like to call on Minister Hogan um, – to do his job, which is to defend the our money, and not only that, to set an example for all our honest employees who um, are not working next to these people, and what kind of message does it send to them? I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't. I, I have questions. I don't even know why I can get a cash advance on a government credit card. To be honest, you know, even if it's in your name, because our government employees have a credit card in their name, used for travel and what have you, I totally understand. And there are some absolute legitimate expenses that will end up on your credit report, credit card in your name. But I can only take the characterizations offered by the Auditor General. She says. Uh, falsely representing credentials, that's a problem. Personal use of corporate credit cards, always a problem. Inappropriate use of government resources, always a problem. So if this is as widespread as it seems to be across most of the departments of the government, 
to not bring in law enforcement just to me feels like, well, we don't want people to know that there's at that level of fraudulent behavior inside of the public sector. But the upside is to say that we are holding them accountable. We would like you to know that we are, have your best interests at heart. They completely misread these things. Totally misread these things because when it comes out after the fact in an annual report from the Auditor General, and we know that only one person was terminated, and that's the person who took cash advances in excess of $131,000, the after the fact makes it worse. I just don't know how they do these calculations. You have a oppressor. Just like they did when Ed Byrne was caught by Danny Williams in the constituency allowance scandal. Have a presser and say, here's what we've identified, here's what we're doing about it, it won't happen again. We're going to implement data analytics as per the that organization, the expert who chimed in and say, we will make sure this does not happen again. Because we can't blame them for it happening once because you can't be looking over the shoulder of every public sector employee every second of every single day to ensure that they're doing these things. But when we catch them, we make an example of them, the whole province would have went, bravo. And now they're going, what the hell is going on? I mean, you know, if, if I walked into Walmart and stole a bag of goods, I'd be in a lot of trouble. My life would be ruined. And someone who's going to probably makes, I mean, uh, the reality is that to a certain degree, some of these people are probably in fairly high positions and maybe even connected. And, and, and that's all part of it, too. I understand. But unfortunately, when if change is truly in the air, as Minister Cody said in her budget, then uh, change starts here, which is what they said last year. And it's never too late. It's never too late to do the difficult thing, the courageous thing. And, and I want to call on the caucus and the premier to realize that it is one of these moments, that there's no statute of limitations. We're not talking about something that happened 20 years ago where no. people are retired. I mean, it, it's now. I mean, sure. it, 2020. A staunch liberal supporter is telling me that I'm uh, making a mountain out of a molehill because the money's been paid back. But your point is taken. If I walk out having shoplifted and get caught, I still did the shoplifting even if I said, oh, here's the coke back. It, 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 that's just how things work. You know, even if you repay anything, whether it be a civil fine or a criminal charge and reparations are made, it's still you, you committed it. You did it. It doesn't make it all of a sudden go away. You know, don't worry about it because you're going to give me back that 10 grand. Okay, let's call it a day. Wait now. Someone stole or fraudulently represented themselves and the credentials to do that. <laughs> I don't understand that argument. Well, they paid it back. Yeah, if we can't trust you with the credit card, we probably can't trust you. So anyway, I'll leave it at that time. I'm going to get to the news. Very quick summary from you. No, listen, everyone. Time for courage. Time to take action on all the important things we're dealing with. Everyone, take care. Stay safe. You too. Bye, Tom. All right, news it is. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Hi, welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number four. Kevin, you're on the air. How are you this morning, Patty? How bad you? Oh, I'm on this side, side, and the sun is shining. Good enough. Hey, buddy, I'll take it any day. Uh, going back to the Ratchild report again, Patty, uh, I got to call him out on it, and uh, it got to be made public. Uh, for the simple reason, and I'll go to what Larry Shortle said about it's the same as you're going to get a uh, an appraisal on your house. Well, the owner, well, we happen to be the owners of the assets, Larry. And, I mean, if I'm going to sell my business or and you're going to buy it, the first thing you're going to do is come in and get an independent appraiser to see what the real value is of it. 
and it's going to be a commercial where it's located, and you're going to do your due diligence on it. So all of this marketability and all this that people are going to do that anyway. They're going to go out and get their own studies done and see where it's located. Uh, we don't need to publicly publish the entirety of the report. That is unnecessary. But I, for even just the, the small starter... If there was a press conference held by Minister Cody where she said, you know, much like what we saw in the publicly released Green Report, Rothschild also suggests that we divest our oil and gas assets. They also suggest that we privatize the motor vehicle. They also suggest that we look at selling off in full or in part the Newfoundland Liquor Corporation. You know, I don't know how that discloses anything because the market will very quickly know you're interested in selling bull arm if you put out requests for proposals to sell bull arm. So, you know, there's a few tidbits that we can get you know, maybe sometimes we might overplay some of these things, but when the comments are this, there's commercially sensitive portions of the report that we will not release. Okay, but then in the exact same presser to go on to say, even parts of the report that are not commercially sensitive, we're not going to release those either. I mean, why? That's, that's, that's what gets me going. It's like, why? Yeah, I mean, aren't we the owners? We should at least have some idea of what's going on instead of you guys. And if you don't show it to us, how do we know if you're following through after we the people spent five million on it? It's it's and and Patty, one more question. Well, I know you're you're busy there this morning, but uh, do you know if the uh, the other members of the house actually got the report yet? Not to my knowledge. So, although all the members of the opposite, people of the province, paying their taxes and everything else that they represent, uh, so they're all second-class citizens now compared to the Liberal Party, what the heck is going on here, bud? They, well, they are our assets. I mean, I get all that stuff. I mean, it's the taxpayers own all of these things. The, we do require someone to manage these things, and that would be, of course, the government of the day. And in this case, we have a very slim one-seat majority Liberal government. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that everybody else is shut out in full, including other members of the House of Assembly, whether it be NDP members, PC members, independent members. You know, even if there was a technical briefing and the need to protect information for all of our collective best interests, because we can't throw it all out, and all of a sudden the bidding process leads to lowball bids and nothing but lowball bids. And then, you know, will we even, after the fact, understand that, let's just say, I'll pick round numbers, that our oil and gas assets are worth, over the lifetime of the, the various fields, pick a number, $5 billion. And we sold them for $3 billion. But that, you know, unless we are able to actually know, whether it be prior to recommendations or in the aftermath, what we actually got for some of these assets, then we're completely left in the dark with something that we do play an active role in based on the level of taxation I pay. So I know it's a complicated issue. I know commercial sensitivities are real, but that doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's a, a full black ink marker uh, report that may or may not ever see the light of day. So I, I don't know. I just find it a bit frustrating, to be honest. I tell you the truth, Patty, so do a lot of people. And, I mean, it's time for the liberal government to come out now and start fessing up on everything that's going on like Buddy was saying there about and yourself about the employees and all of this some of the employees majority of the employees I worked in there are good standoff people but you're always going to run into a few but be that as it may sir I still think that we should receive some of that report if nothing else the 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 people, the MHAs from, from the opposition party should certainly get theirs because they represent a good chunk of the people of this province also, and they have a right to know what's going on. Anyway, sir, thank you for your time. Appreciate yours, Kevin. All the best. Okay, buddy, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, again, fundamentally, if it just backed up what Moya Green told us, 
if that divulges any price sensitive or commercially sensitive information, I'll be a monkey's uncle. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member of the House of Assembly elected in Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks Welcome to the show. This. Happy to do oh, it. Good, good. Yeah, no, I just uh, I just want to reiterate what um, Noreen said there uh, to VOCM News there the, uh, the week. Um, we don't have any formal seniors care in Lapper West right now. Uh, other than the few beds that we have in the hospital for long-term care, we don't actually have a private home. We don't have. We barely have a um, home care. We don't have a home care agency that operates in Lapper West. Um, it's on an individual basis, and they're some of the lowest-paid home care workers in the province right now. Uh, you know, this is this is a dire situation for for seniors in in this region. We we just. We have no means to uh, to look after our seniors now, and now we're facing more and more people are facing having to uh, leave their family and their friends. In some cases, spousal uh, uh, spouses, uh, you know, having to uh, to go separate ways because we just don't have nowhere for our seniors to go, and our population here is uh, aging rapidly right now. Well, uh, you know, I, I know you're an advocate and you speak out like Noreen does. But it's remarkable, even though there's a big upside to it, that we've got grade five students at J.R. Smallwood talking about proposed solutions. And I think they picked a place called Marion Lake for a 30-bed facility to be built. But where do we go here? I mean, the absence of any long-term care, you know, forget the fact that there's an absence of acute care. Uh, What's facing the folks in Labrador, it's just sort of strange to know that it's not there and has never been there. I'm I'm not sure I get it. Yeah, it it is a trick. So we can go back to... um Early 2000s, um, the town of Lever City saw something coming. Uh, there was a lot of seniors there. The 50-plus um, club just skyrocketed in membership. So they commissioned a study. Uh, the town did. And it actually proposed a to convert an old hospital into a uh, long-term care and, you know, private home care or private care like you know like the smaller homes you see around the bay that like that was the proposal this was in two in the early 2000s and it was sent to government put on a shelf completely forgot about we've been at this for almost 30 almost 20 uh, something years now just kind of just trying to get the basics you know um there is small communities on the island that have more supports for seniors than this region here and we have uh, we actually um, increased in population since the last census. Uh, Labrador West uh, has, has grown uh, sig- uh, significantly in the last n- number of years, and a lot of it is new people coming into work to fill roles of people who are retiring. But at the same time, our retirees don't want to leave because some of those retirees were actually raised here in Labrador West and worked for 30 years in the mine, and they have kids and grandkids. I'm no different. I'm here. My parents are still here. I have my kids here. My parents are not going anywhere. They're going to retire here because my kids are here. And out of my kids, maybe one of them might stay, both might stay. I don't know. But at the same time, we're actually a multi-generational community now. And it's just interesting to see that government still treats us as if we were a work camp where there is no future. But there's a huge future here in Labrador West. Well, of course there is. Now, it comes with a bit of boom and bust. But that's the cyclical nature of exactly what Lab West depends on, by and large. So, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if I said it to you in the past, but I've certainly said it to someone or just opined off uh, the top of the show. 
even when we look at things like benefits agreements, specifically in LabWest, as opposed to a strict focus on tax base, royalties, those types of things, just imagine if part of the benefits agreement was, okay, let's get Valet to build a 30-bed long-term care facility. <laughs> and we don't pay for it, but we just crossed off one of the big uh, challenges in the region, and we maybe did away with some royalties that we're eventually going to have to use to build said facility. So I'm not sure well, we don't get out in front of some of these these issues upon approvals. Yeah, and, and, and well, you know, the, the, you look at these two mines, and uh, IOC has been operating in Labrador West in some capacity since the early 1950s. You know, the first load of ore left Labrador West in 1954. Uh, we've, you know, we've put billions of billions and billions of dollars into the government coffers over the last, you know, uh, 50, 60 years here in Labrador West alone. You know, you know, some return on investment would be appreciative, and that's the thing there. We, you know, we have um, you know, there's very good jobs. Uh, people who work in this mining industry make extraordinarily good money, uh, but at the, at the same time, you know, we put money back into the province. You know, these are these are actually very good paying jobs in this province. You know, we look at the cyclical nature of it, but if you stop and think about it. Labrador West has never really shut down. We have not stopped mining. Um, we've, you know, there was layoffs in the past, but they were very minimal layoffs. But we have not stopped mining since 1954. So it is a cyclical nature of the market. But at the same time, people still got their paychecks. People still bought goods. People still worked. So at the end of the day, we contribute enough that at the least the government can do and say, okay, your seniors have somewhere to live. Yeah. So, you know, you know, we have our ups and downs and everything like that, but at the same time, we're just being ignored. We're being treated as a work camp, but we're not a work camp. We're not just some, you know, far-off distant land that, you know, a magic check comes to the government every uh, every few months. We actually are a, over, over 10,000 people living in a region with very good wages in an industry that is paying very good money in royalties back to the government, and we can't even get somewhere for our seniors to live. This is, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it seems like uh, something that we could have nipped in the bud based on another entity, Valet or any other mining giant, uh, footing the bill for some things that we actually need versus things get worse, and then consequently the province ends up bucking up out of the royalties that we collected from the company. Anyway, I don't know if that's a good or bad idea, but I'll throw it out there. Oh, I know, and there, there has to be some conversation about it right now, Patty, because right now, it, 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 you know, it, it's crickets. No one, you know, they, they're continuing to just be, you know, put their you know, fingers in their ears and go la, 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 yeah. there's nothing wrong up there, and that's the, that's the sad part about it you know we have our own issues on top of on top of that just healthcare in general and and people forced to travel on their own dime to get health health care and then you know nurse practitioners can't bill mcp so we you know we have a bunch of nurse practitioners up here not working to their full scope so you know we have our issues on top of that but at the end of the day you know someone needs to come up here and have a look around and go okay yeah you know this this is a problem and it is we have a huge seniors population who are now forced basically to move to Cornerbrook, where they have no friends or family in order to uh, live out their final years while their grandkids and their kids are here in Labrador West. And the grandkids is the exact reason why the students in J.R. Smallwood put forward this plan. You know, it's a, a good initiative. I know that's not what we're talking about, but when young people know more about what's actually happening in the community, the greater chance they'll have when they grow older to be engaged, which I think is sort of lost on many age groups this, this day and age. It's all about hating the other guy versus understanding what's actually going on. I appreciate the time, Jordan. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Jordan Brown. He's the NDP member for Lab West. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for putting me on this morning, Patty. Happy to do it. How are, how are you doing? Good? Doing okay. Thanks. You? And, Patty, I'm pretty upset. I, I, I would like to comment, comment what the member for Steve Port Report, Mr. Tony Wakem, said when he stood up in the House to speak about the 
budget last week. Mr. Wakem is against the government moving the courthouse to Steamboat Crossing. He said that Steamboat is clearly the hub of the region. Steamboat got everything. In other words, the town of Steamboat Crossing got nothing. He even said in his speech, Patty, if I could be so bold, I would suggest just like moving the courthouse from Cornerbrook to Gillums or from downtown St. John's to the food line in Torbay. What a kick in the face to the resident of Steamboat Crossing by Mr. Wakem. And then this morning, Patty, Listen on CBC, the mayor of Steamwell, Tom Rose, was on putting down the town of Steamwell Crossing. Well, I, I think for Mayor Rose, he would be advocating for the town that he's the mayor of versus whether or not Steamwell Crossing should have X, Y, or Z. But is it not fair and accurate to say that the hub of that region would indeed be Stephenville itself? Yes, right now, but, but Patty... I, I came here back in the 60s. My, my, my dad, we left Harbor Grace after this, I played with the CVs. Steamboat Crossing was the hub of the region, Patty, and we lost everything. And only for the Americans, Steamboat would not have anything today, Patty. Yeah, I'm just talking about what the realities are today as opposed to what happened in the 60s or the impact of the Americans, what have you. I'm just asking the question because I don't live out there. You know more than I do. Yeah. And, and Patty, we got all we got about twenty businesses here in the crossing right now. And not only that, Patty, this is not only for Steamboat Crossing, the courthouse, and, and the motor registration, and other government services. It's for the whole Bay of St. George. And Patty, Mr. Wakem, he wasn't here then, I guess. And, and Tom Rose knows. I've been fighting over the years for a new courthouse for Bay of St. George. I was on the Citizen Committee, and I've been on the West Coast Health Action Committee since two thousand three. Uh, 2003, fighting to keep service at our new hospital in Steamwell when it opened indoors in 2003. And I was on the Steamwell Airport Citizen Committee for many years trying to keep our airport open. So there's no reason for Tom Rose, now mayor, and getting on uh, say that we don't really don't deserve the courthouse. Was it about a 15 minute spin from Stephenville to the crossing? That's all. It's only uh, nine kilometers, Patty. Okay, yeah. And, you know, and not only that, people come from, come from all over uh, Port of Bath, they got to go to courthouse, right? And then Mr. Wait, and, and I got this from Hanser, Patty, what he said in his speech. Oh. So it was all true words. And for Mr. Wakeham to do that is it, unbelievable. It's only a kick in the face. And the people here in Stephen Crossing and Bay St. George are not too happy either about what he had to say. Well, I imagine the folks in Stephenville will be okay with it. So we're talking about, that's the uh, renovation for the old uh, CNA building, $8.5 million. Yeah, Is uh, that what we're talking uh, about? Yeah, yeah, we're at the court. I, I was telling you last week about it was the trade school, right? And, and Patty, Mr. Wake and Mr. Rose did not complain when our campus closed in 2020 and moved to the new campus in Stephenville. Of course not. You know, that's right. So now we got a chance. We had the government owns this building in the crossing. I took my trade there back in 69 or 70, whatever. And, and here was the, the government owns the building. It was being heated, lights on, and there's all loads of parking room and wheelchair accessible and everything, Patty. Fair enough. Standing up for your community, I suppose that's what it's all about. And I didn't hear or read uh, Mr. Wakeham's uh, specific commentary there, but I can uh, certainly take your word for it. Uh, anything else, Dave, before I sneak one more on? before no, that, the... That's it. No, Patty, and I got all that from Hancher. I got it here. Oh, no, you, you read it from Hancher. That's the document. That's the one. Yeah. Anyhow, okay. Patty, that's all I got to say, and I I, like, I, just, I, I don't want to say it, but Mr. Wakeham and, and, and the mayor of Stimulus are just suck it up. 
and 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 support the support the government for what they're doing for the town of Steamer Crossing and the whole Bay of St. George. Appreciate the time, Dave. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right, let's get one more for the news. Uh, line five, Florence, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Doing grand, you? Good, thank you. Thank you for taking my call today. No problem. I'm calling regarding Markland Road, the Colnet Road from, uh, say, the end of Markland there to, I guess, Colnet, I guess. Yep. The road is a disaster. Like, I've messaged our member, and she's, like, saying more or less, like, the road has to dry out. I mean, how in the name of God is it going to dry out with all this rain that we've been having? And I think it's time for our government to stand up and do something with that road. But they got the grader right there ready to go, don't they? Well, we were in the weekend and there was nothing done. And I mean, like, it's, if it's ready to go, it should be gone because the road, if someone, God forbid, there's a lot of families that's in there now, just take sick. I tell you what, Wade Smith Ambulance is not getting in through with the roads, the holes that's in that road in there now. It's absolutely ridiculous. I was told yesterday that they started the grading from what end, I don't know, but yesterday. Oh, okay, because it's not done if they stay this farther in unless they got it done. But like I said, our member got to step up, I think, and really try to get something done with that road. It needs to be upgraded and let the water and everything drain out. It's ridiculous. The bog is coming up through the road. Oh, I've been on the road. It's been disgraceful for years. Uh, but my understanding was the grader was dropped off there yesterday, so I imagine the road work has begun, at least the grading. Oh, well, that's the start, I guess. Yep. I think something more than that needs to be done because our next bit of rain is she's going to wash out again. So, I mean, it's time, I think, at this day and age for the people to actually stick together and get this done. Hard to argue. Now, I'll confirm that the grader was dropped off, but this is a fellow who was as concerned as you are. He called a week or two ago to complain about the uh, state of Markland Road, but then he called back yesterday. Today's Tuesday, right? Yeah. Yesterday to say that the grader had been dropped off, so he was appreciative of that much. So I think that's what's Ooh, happening. That's great. Yep. Well, that's great. Okay, Patty, thank you for your time. Happy happy to take your call, Florence. Take good care. Thank you. You're Bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, how are we doing on the phone? Dave, let's take a break for the newscast when we come back. The topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number two. Connie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. First time calling you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I just want to say that I really appreciate the fact that you are very, very respectful with our seniors. That's my first thing. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, as, really as it should be. How you treat them. I and appreciate it. What, what I wanted to talk about was just regards to people having their health records sent to Ontario. Yep. I'm just wondering why, why would you need your chart? I don't think it's necessary at all. I've been trying to understand exactly why this happens. You know, so many doctors will give their patients, you know, a couple of weeks uh, to come and collect the records free of yeah. charge, take them away, bring right. them to the next one. Then some will choose whether or not there's some financial incentive for them to send it off to, I think it's called DocuDavid or something, or is the company in Ontario. So yeah. they'll, house, they'll house the records, and they'll charge a pretty hefty fee to get your own personal medical records back versus the fact that all the doctors, they send all their billing records right to MCP. I don't know how much more complicated it would be to, in addition to the billing records, send the entirety of your records, and MCP can charge a clerical fee to get your records. So in my mind, because I used to work in a clinic only just a few years ago, um, I don't see any reason why I would need my chart because... When you go on Meditech, I think that's what they still use, the Meditech, 
all my results and everything are on there. If I had an X-ray done, it doesn't matter if it was Eastern Newfoundland or Western. They're able to access any of my records there. The only thing that you would be concerned about if it was an insurance claim or something like that and you needed, like, notes from your uh, from your file, but your lawyer can get all that. So I feel really bad for seniors that are spending that hefty amount of money to get their records when they don't need them. That's all I had to say here today. Yeah, well, really? it's a fair point. You know, one of the yeah. key recommendations coming from the Cameron Inquiry was exactly that, the establishment of an online digital medical record system for all the obvious reasons, for counteractivity yeah. inside of drug uh, prescriptions, all up and down the line. My issue there is I don't know that as a uh, an independent subcontractor, which is why doctors are operating their own clinic, whether or not they actually input all that information into that integrated system, or is that system strictly for when you've been in the hospital to get a procedure or a test or what have you, because that's where I think the gap is. So as the contractor, I'm not uploading all that information, but if I go to the hospital, it's automatically in that system. Yeah. No, if I go to my doctor and I've had an X-ray or anything, he sent me for an X-ray, it does get uploaded. So I don't see any reason why a senior would need their record. It's just shameful that they would have to spend, like, all that money to get a record that they don't even need. Really. I'm just thinking of the seniors. I mean, if somebody else wants to go get the records. But the seniors, they're on fixed income, and I don't think it's fair that they should have to, you know, send for records that they don't even really need. Well, sh- sure, but an X-ray would have been conducted in the hospital and uploaded to the online yeah, system. That's right. Versus if yeah. I had, you know, evaluated that you needed some prescription to treat your high blood pressure. If that came yeah. from an independent clinic, I don't think that automatically gets into the system as per the diagnosis. Now, the pharmaceutical records will indeed be part of it for the pharmacist to access. Yeah. So I think yeah. there's maybe a small gap where some of your medical records are still required. Yeah. Maybe the best thing for people to do is get a copy of the record each time they visit their doctor. That's what I used to do. Yeah, fair enough. Stay ahead yeah. of it. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate that. My husband's going to laugh. He said she finally did it because I've been talking about this for weeks that I just don't believe that seniors should have to try to get their records like that. It's just shameful to me. It is, and you're one of thousands out there that threatens to be a first-time caller, and I'm glad you took the leap today. Yeah. My heart goes out to seniors in a very big way. Yeah, they have a soft spot in my heart. Well, me too. And I hear from an awful lot of them with a variety of stories and tales, many of which are troubling to say the least. Yeah, you're pretty patient with them, and I really appreciate that. Thanks for that, Connie. Thanks so much. I enjoy it. Appreciate your time. Stay in touch. Okay. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. All right, uh, let's keep rolling here. Line number one, Neil, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Grant, you? Oh, not so bad, Patty. I know you're busy. I won't take much of your time. Uh, Patty, had my wallet stolen about three weeks ago and uh, fraudulent use of credit and debit cards and, as part of the process. Uh, while that was frustrating, it wasn't near as frustrating as trying to get my life back together. And I'll give you just some three quick examples of trying to uh, piece things back together. Uh, one of the fraudulent uses of my credit card was in a taxi cab. And uh, my bank was pretty quick to pick up on this. Uh, when I called the taxi company and spoke to the dispatcher, he advised me that the date time stamp on the ATM terminal would tell exactly when the transaction was made. And there was also a camera in the taxi cab. And he said, 
if the police want the information, we can release it. They'll have a photograph matched with the time we know who stole your, 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 your wallet. Um, my wife and I, on two separate cell phones, tried to call the 729-8000 number of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, I'd say between seven and ten times, and it rang and rang and rang, never picked up, line went dead. So I gave up on that. Uh, turned my attention then to motor vehicle registration to try to get my driver's license. Understand that all this can be uh, done online, but I had reason to travel two days later, and I needed a credit card, sorry, a driver's license to rent a car. Uh, go to motor vehicle registration mid-morning uh, on a work day. Three of 11 wickets are open. Uh, you know, so spent several hours there. Everyone's telling me the same thing. Uh, you can do this online. I, I get it, but I needed a driver's license because I was traveling and had to rent a car. Uh, my third experience, uh, Patty, if you need to renew your MCP card, you can do it online. Uh, if you need to uh, apply for MCP, you can do it online. But if you need a replacement MCP card because your card was lost or stolen, you either have to you have to fill out a paper form, uh, send it by mail, uh, fax it, or deliver it, hand deliver it. So I'm just a little bit confused, number one, why a government line, an emergency number wouldn't be answered, uh, why there's 11 wickets and only three are being served on a given workday. And if you can do two of three things at MCP, why you can't do the third one? Uh, excellent question. I wouldn't know the answer. Uh, but back to motor vehicle, just for a second. Your concern is that there's 11 wickets, only three open, right? Correct. You know, counter service is going to be one of those things that governments will inevitably reconsider as time goes on. You know, I wonder, and this is just me thinking off the top of my head, is given the way that Minister Studley put all of these online services at the forefront of the delivery, whether or not we've seen now that so many people have now gone to that and don't need or want to go and take our tickets, sit down, wait their turn. And so consequently, they've evaluated that three is maybe enough to handle the volume because we know that so many more people are now simply going online with their MyGov account. What do you think? Valid point, Patty, but uh, by observation, I'm going to say 75 people in more vehicle registration, enough seating for probably 30 a lot of seniors, okay. yeah. uh, people physically handicapped. Uh, so there, there is a need for the counter service. You know, say my case had it been a normal circumstance, I would have done it online, but I needed that physical card to rent the car, so I had to be there. And obviously, people find reason they need to do these services in person as well. So the demand is obviously there. This was at ten o'clock on a Wednesday morning. It wasn't like I'm there, you know, uh, 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. Oh, I get it. Some people simply prefer to be able to reach out and touch someone or to look them in the eyes and get service. I totally get it. For me, I'm more than happy to re-register my vehicle online, but that that's just me. A lot of people Absolutely. simply do appreciate the customer service because that's what they're used to. Yeah, and the one that concerns me the most, though, was that the 729-8000 number rings and it's not answered. It, it wasn't worthy of a 911 call. But it certainly needed, you know, immediate attention if there was going to be any, any pursuing of trying to identify the individual who stole my wallet. Uh, but the fact that that line was not answered when between seven and ten phone calls were made is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, and not good enough. There's lots of numbers where I'm not even expecting anyone to answer. I'm expecting to go through a, a catalog or a menu and select one and maybe be forced to leave a message, maybe just be dangling on, in, uh, on hold forever in a day. But when something's referred to as emergency contact, well, emergencies have an immediate concern. And if you're going to staff the, or publish those numbers, you need to staff those numbers. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, if my bank can get me a debit card in 20 minutes, if my bank can replace my, my uh, a credit card in four business days from delivering from Montreal, 
I, I, I struggle as to why it's three weeks later and I still don't have an MCP card. And I still, while I did get a paper copy of a driver's license, I still don't have that plastic card yet. It's been almost three weeks. Yeah. yeah. Hurry up and wait. That's the order of the day when dealing with the behemoth that is government. Amen. Anyhow, Patty, that's it for me for today. Thanks for your time, and I appreciate you uh, your listening here. I appreciate the, ta- the call this morning. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Neil. Bye-bye. All right, uh, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Leona. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. I was listening earlier, and you said the gas was going to go down, um, to, uh, going up tonight, 10-something. Went up overnight, so it's up 10 and a half cents today. How come we wasn't informed before that, I wonder? Well, we never do get informed, do we? We only ever got informal forecasts or guesses, we'll call them, from either George Murphy, the late George Murphy, or this gentleman now, Dan McTeague. So we're never given the heads up formally until, like it used to be, the media got a news release from the PUB. And at 8 p.m. that evening, we could release the information. Since someone betrayed the embargo, now we're not allowed to release it until after 12 p.m. midnight, where most people are in the bunk. So that's where no one gets the heads up unless we get a, a guess or a forecast coming from a fellow like McTeague. Another reason could be the gas companies won't make that extra bit of cash because they need it so badly. Oh, yeah, they're they're hurting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what do you think I am? Me and you both on that front. Yeah, 10 and a half cents is a whopping big increase. And the same people that sometimes give me a heads up on numbers, they also say that there might be an, an extraordinary big increase coming before the 1st of May. So what that looks like, I don't know. And plus, keep in mind, that was just interruption formula. There might be another increase coming uh, for Thursday as well. So we're going to try to keep a close eye on it. I, I fight with the, the, like, if I get a heads up, I'm really tempted to share the information as soon as I hear it, but I can't confirm it because the PUB won't confirm it for me. So I hesitate to go out there with big, you know, declarations of here it goes up 10 and a half cents and then it goes up five and I'm an idiot. Or I say gas is going down tomorrow, so wait, and then it goes up two cents and then I'm an idiot again. So I really struggle with what to do with the numbers that people, you know, leak to me during the, uh, during the week. They're crooks. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. They're crooks. Well, how can anybody else get away with what they're doing? Well, it's a fair question, but I'd ask this one on top of it, is we don't even necessarily know exactly why the PUB increased the price of fuel overnight. You know, so we can call the oil and gas companies. Your, your word is that they're crooks, and they're certainly doing very, very well. Obviously, their profits are through the roof. But exactly what was the reason for the increase of 10 and a half cents last night? We don't know. There might be a reference to the summer blend, which means replace butane with more uh, expensive additives. But I don't even think that's been delivered yet. So what exactly is going on? The price of oil trading about a buck or $111. I know there's not a direct relationship with the price of a barrel of oil and the price of a liter of unleaded fuel. But nobody explains anything. We just get numbers on a piece of paper, which is making it harder and harder to accept as we all you know, cringe when we go to fill up. Exactly. That's what I did this morning. Yep. Always the way. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. So what part of the province are you calling from? Carboneer. Carboneer. So what did you pay for gas this morning? I paid a dollar ninety four point eight. Wow. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. Nudging up against two bucks is I think ridiculous is a good way to put it. Oh, they're gonna get two bucks and they're gonna get more too. And we got nobody in the government's gonna do anything about us. 
Yeah, so what do you suggest they should do? They should just, you know, waive the the provincial tax on gasoline for a while? Because in other provinces, they've actually said that we're going to have a moving scale. When the oil is trading over this number, then we'll reduce some of the gas tax. When it's trading above a certain number, we'll waive all of the gas tax. You know, like Alberta, they've come up with this scheme or this plan, a moving scale. It might make some sense. I don't know, but I think it's worth having a look at it because if people were hurting this time last year, it's way worse today than it was a year ago. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, this is ridiculous. I often said, like, I moved home from the mainland quite a few years ago now, but I often said that one of these days they're going to come up with a tank to put on your back and tax you for every breath you take. <laughs> what? The air you breathe. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. I mean, I don't know how... Like, I'm a senior. I'll be 81 next month if I live to see it. And uh, I, I can't afford to live. And I own my own home. Thank God for that. If I had any rent to pay, I don't know how in the name of God I'd pay it. Uh, Leona, you're, you're offering what many people are thinking and their own personal predicament that they find themselves in. I appreciate your time, and I wish... Maybe I'll run up by the boss. You know, if I hear a rumor that I think is could be substantiated, whether or not I should just ball it out on Wednesday, come hell or high water, and ask for forgiveness versus ask for permission. Well, I'm telling you, I was really, I couldn't believe it when she said, oh, we got informed this morning that we have to put it up an extra, whatever it was, 10 cents, I think. Yep. Well, oh, my, I don't know. I'll keep on fighting and trying to stay alive, I suppose, but... You know, the senior citizens are making. And, and what I seem to think, and I could be wrong, but I think the government thinks because we're seniors, we're rotten with money. My husband was making $50 a week when I had my children. $50 a week. How in the name of God would I get rich on that? And, and we never got much better. And he's dead now 11 years or it will be 11 years in July, and I'm having one heck of a hard time. Because when your husband dies, you lose half of everything. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see some of the fellows in government cope with that. Yeah, they're not exactly walking in the same shoes that, that you are. So with your struggles, and I know there's many things that I can not do, do you think there's anything I can do to help you out today? No, no, unless you're going to give me a big giant raise. I wish I could flip that switch or stroke that pen because I wish we could do more to help alleviate people's worries. I wish you nothing but the best, Leona. Stay in touch. Hopefully I'll be getting all kinds of phone calls now. I heard you on open line this morning. Exactly. You know as you will. Don't move too far from the phone. No. <laughs> okay. Just thought I'd you know, tell you some of my frustrations because, boy, it's getting tough. I know it is. You're always welcome on the program. It's nice speaking with you this morning. Thank you. Have a good day. You too, Leona. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. And so I got a picture of a Shell station up in Labrador. Uh, this fella paid 201.4 this morning at the pumps for self-serve regular unleaded gasoline. All right, Dave, we're going to play ourselves out. No sense sneaking on another caller, is there? We're not going to give him enough time. All right, we'll pick up that call maybe tomorrow morning if they have time, where we will pick up this conversation right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.